You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Sometimes we feel blessed by the things we love, but those same things can also make us feel cursed. Hey, hello storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service. And you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a man whose passion turned into his nightmare, that turned into his gift, that turned into his salvation. He's a coach who earned his expertise by overcoming a life-threatening event. As a coach, he helps sales and marketing leaders conquer their worry and feelings of doubt and embrace the success that they deserve. He's the author of his best-selling memoir, Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows. He donates all of the proceeds from the sale of the book to the World Bicycle Relief, Get pumped to learn and grow from Michael O'Brien's story. Michael, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you, Lewis. It's awesome to be with you today. It's, I, I've been looking forward to this for several days now. Wonderful. Thank you. So have I, my friend. Where were you born, Michael? In the beautiful city of Rochester, New York, right on the other side of the pond, Lake Ontario from you. <laughs> Well, when you were born there, I was on your side of the pond. That's true, you were. So, yeah. um, but I'm a I'm a good old upstate New York kid. Grew up in the suburbs. Fell in love with Toronto. That just happens to be my favorite baseball team. So that's where I spent my youth. It was a good city to grow up in, no doubt. Do you follow jazz at all? A little bit, but I'm not a jazz aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. There's a brilliant jazz saxophonist who lives and works in Toronto named Pat LaBarbera, and uh, he's oh. from he's from Rochester, New York. That sounds that name sounds familiar, but I would have to be honest, you, I'd be testing the old memory bank a little bit to like really pinpoint it. But um Rochester actually has a pretty good music scene. There's some pretty good stuff there, so. Yeah. yeah. Jazz, uh classic rock, you know, I grew up in all that stuff way back when. Uh-huh. So, who do you 
feel influenced you the most when you were a boy? Well, if you asked me this when I was a boy, I would not say my parents. Now, as an older man now, at 50, I would say most definitely them. So growing up, I sort of idolized personalities, sports heroes, that type of thing. I wanted to be, you know, a famous athlete. Athletes sort of drove my early childhood and my identity. So I didn't necessarily give a lot of like props to my parents. But now, you know, as a father of two girls and as a now an older man with hopefully with a little bit more wisdom than I was back then, I would say my mom and dad, especially for their resilience and their work ethic. Okay. And as far as athletes go, does any do any names stand out? You know, I don't like none of the big like so some of the icons I would like really follow, but I love some of um some of the unsung heroes. So one of my favorite baseball players growing up was a guy named Bob Baylor. He was um guy that was drafted actually when the Toronto Blue Jays created their franchise and he played for the minor league team in Rochester. He wasn't a big star, but there was something about him that I just loved. And so he didn't get all the press, but he was a major league baseball player. So I love that. So I don't know if I really have like a favorite. Um, I just, I, I sort of just, I love the fact that they are performing at, on the biggest stage for their profession. I thought that was really cool. And I, mm -hmm. I sort of wanted to be that when I was growing up. Well, those are the kinds of values that can drive us throughout our entire lives. And sometimes they're driving us and we're not even aware of it. Absolutely. And I would say the, in that case, they were driving me and I wasn't necessarily really conscious about how much they were driving me. Mm. So that pursuit of what other people had and maybe like what I didn't have in this whole like fear of being judged, right? So I did a lot of comparison and sometimes that comparison was inspiring, but sometimes it was a little bit more of a judgment uh, that got thrown back on me through my like inner critic, if you will, of all the things I wasn't or I didn't have. So it wasn't uh, that great. That's a really uh, a key uh, issue that you brought up that I think, whether people are aware of it or not, it's one of the most limiting things in most people's lives. We compare all the time. And generally, the comparison doesn't cast ourselves in a very positive light. It's usually we're lesser than the people we're thinking about. And it's, and look, the media doesn't help that either at all. And I think that's a, a very, very um, interesting thing in this whole journey of self-growth, dealing with comparisons. Do, do you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? You said athlete, but was there something specific or something other than athlete? No, not really. So... Like I dreamt about being the shortstop for the Toronto Blue Jays for a lot of my life, which for an American kid, that's a weird dream. Like not too many American League Little Leaguers, uh, American Little Leaguers grow up wanting to play for Canada's baseball team. So but that was, that was my dream. Again, a little bit on the edge. But I would say for the the longest time, I 
I felt most confident when I was playing sports. I I wasn't necessarily the best student, and I can definitely go back to some experiences when I was even in grammar school, elementary school, where teachers, and I don't think they were trying to be um, mean in any way, but they basically let me know that I wasn't necessarily the best student. I wasn't a poor student. I wasn't a D and an F student, but I was like a C plus student. And I lack confidence in some subjects, especially like English and reading and all that jazz. So, but where I felt most confident was playing whatever sport I was playing. Even though I may not have been the best, I just felt like in my element when I was doing sport. Well, you know, another thing, you just hit on another key thing. I think um, I've noticed in my journey that a lot of the people who are extremely successful had a really tough time with school. And some of them have great stories about teachers who really, really reflected to them a very negative self-esteem. And these people have gone on to create enormous success. And uh, that's, that's quite an interesting thing. Um, one of the best things I remember from Les Brown, you know, Les Brown. Oh, yeah, name? Les. Yeah, great guy. Yes, and he, his great story is the day that a teacher asked him to write on the board, and he said, I can't, sir. He said, why not? Because I'm the dumb twin. And the teacher mm. didn't accept that. And he said to him, son, don't ever let someone else's opinion of yourself become the opinion of your. Don't ever let someone else's opinion of you become your opinion of yourself. And that changed his life. Yeah, no, it's a power, it's a powerful story. And I, I really had, again, some teachers, good people. It wasn't intentional, but they definitely planted some seeds that I decided to water in terms of like my, my self-worth as a student. But then I also had an awesome teacher, my junior, uh, my junior in high school, my chemistry teacher who believed in me. And I went to him, I said, Hey, I want to take AP chemistry. And again, I wasn't the brightest student in his class, but he saw something in me and he gave me the opportunity to take AP Chem. And that vote of confidence changed a lot. I started to, I started to, it took a while to sort of come around full, you know, fully, but I started to see myself differently as a sort of a student, a student of life, if you will. Mm, what is AP chemistry? Uh, it was advanced placement chemistry, so it was oh. that higher level. So all the students in high school in America take chemistry, and if you want to go on and go go a little bit deeper into the field of study, you would take AP chemistry. It would it'd sort of be like a college-level course senior year of high school. And again, I certainly wasn't the smartest kid in chemistry in junior year. I, I did well, but I wasn't the best. I wasn't I wasn't like the kids that were going to go on to Harvard and Princeton from our high school, but I loved it. And I was really passionate about it. And he, he believed in me and I will, I will never forget him because of that. That's beautiful. And AP, I would, I would assume you became one of those guys who learned how to make your own psychedelic drugs. <laughs> yeah. It was only, only in my dreams. <laughs> I, I, if I, if I did, I think I would have to answer to mom and dad. So, uh, so uh, I dreamt so, about. It. Yeah. So it wasn't as advanced as uh, that would get you 
a narrative like the guy in Breaking Bad. No, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't <laughs> that. So, uh, but you know, um, you never know. I guess there's always there's always hope for tomorrow. <laughs> now you have a passion for bicycling. When did you develop your love for bikes? Oh, it was that first ride. Well, the first ride without training wheels, and I was like the last kid on my block off of training wheels. I was pretty old to come off of training wheels, like around five years old. And I flew down. We, we lived on a little bit of a hill, so our driveway was a hill. So I got to the top of our driveway, and I just went down. I barreled down our hill into the road, no helmet. You know, it was the 70s, so helmets were like, what, what are those? So I was lucky that no cars were coming. But I remember, like, just feeling like I did it. Like I got off of training wheels. I was sort of like a big kid now and the wind in my hair and the freedom. And now, now in that moment, I was like, I can go anywhere. I can explore. I can have some independence. So I still remember that first ride on my Schwinn. It was, it was like, it was yesterday. It was so cool. Mm. Now tell us a little bit about how your passion for bikes developed it grew because i mean you didn't just remain a kid riding around on a standard bicycle no so but the bike stayed with me from that ride then i became a paper boy and i used back in the day where kids used to be the paper boy and paper girls and my bike would allow me to do my paper route and then i found bike racing so i did my first race when i was a teenager i came in second place I lost to an older guy, he's probably double my age, and he had a $700 bike. Now, for anyone listening, a $700 bike, even today's standards, I know it sounds expensive to a lot of people, but now guys and gals are spending 7000 on their bicycle. So back then, I thought, $700 for a bicycle? Who would spend that amount of money on a bike? And I lost to this guy. Um, but it definitely motivated me. So I remember that very first race. And then from there, I started watching the Tour de France on CBS Sports here in America. And it was just 20 minutes, but I got a glimpse of Europe. We didn't really travel much as a family. We'd go to Canada, Toronto, to see the Jays play and stuff. But that was basically it. So I got to get a peek into Europe. And I was like, wow, that's so it was so romantic and blue collar. And I was like, so it was that. And then we had the 1984 Olympics. And there was cycling there, and there was Greg LeMond. So it was like this beautiful stew of all this cycling stuff all coming together. And Lewis, man, I was hooked, head over heels in love, uh, with just being on my bike, racing, like the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle. It's um, been my passion ever since. Now, what was, um, what's the most expensive bike you ever bought? Oh, so is this being recorded? Because um, yeah, sure my yeah. family's gonna really listen in. So, um, so <laughs> my most expensive bike, for the record, cost twelve thousand dollars. Wow! Oh, and I'm actually, as we talk, I'm in the room where I house all my bikes. And yes, it's plural. I have bikes. I have six bicycles. So, um, and they all, but the thing is they all have their own little story. They all have a soul and they're all made by artists who are temperamental and passionate about their craft. Cause I see a bicycle as sort of functional art and 
Um, so I get a little geeked up when it comes to, <laughs> to bikes. But yeah, so um, that $700 bike that I was so flabbergasted by, um, that's long in the rearview mirror. Now I'm spending that amount of money on just a wheel. Um, yeah. or, mm. <laughs> times, times have definitely changed. And for our storytellers listening, and you might be asking, why are they talking so much about bicycles? Well, just wait and see. Now, you describe yourself as a man who was a, a human doer who became a human being. Can you describe your life when you were a human doer? Yeah, great question, Lewis. So I think this is something that most people are going through nowadays that we're, we're doing a lot. We have our to-do list. I know people out there that put things on their to-do list after they get done doing it just so they can cross <laughs> it off their to-do list. And growing up, because I had this inner critic thing about judgment and comparison, I really thought if I just did what society wanted me to do, I would be free from judgment and life would be good. So I went to school, got the job, married the girl, had the kids, did all that. But I was trying to juggle everything. I thought I had to wear the cape, the superhero cape at work because I was a leader at work. I also thought I still had to wear that cape when I came home. Like I had to be all that in a bag of chips at home. Like I had to have the right answer all the time. And I had a lot of stress just doing stuff, not being conscious about what I'm doing, not about what I was, what my priorities were, my intentions for the day, I would just wake up and just do. And this, keep in mind, this is before social media. This is before smartphones. I would just be doing. And as I was doing, sort of like a, a hamster on its wheel, I would just pour the stress inside. And I just kept on pouring it inside and pouring it inside. And sometimes it would come out. I was sort of just chasing happiness as opposed to being happy. But I think there's a lot of people out there that feel like they're on the treadmill, again, the hamster wheel, and they're not really being intentional. They're not being conscious, living a conscious, mindful life. And we just feel like we're doing. And each day sort of goes into the next day. And that definitely was sort of my existence early on. And largely because I thought that's what society wanted, right? That's I, I thought I was doing what you're supposed to do, you know, get a job. It's supposed to be stressful. That's why they pay you. And then things started to change. Now, what was the job that you had? So I was a sales and marketing guy from the get-go. I mentioned my paper route, so going back to even selling papers. So at the time when I was my early professional life, I was a sales and marketing leader for a pharmaceutical company. It was global, based in Tokyo, but based here in the States in New Jersey. And I was the marketing director for their flagship drug that, and that drug helped people with Alzheimer's disease. So it was a huge amount of responsibility. I was a little bit of a big fish in a small pond. We weren't a huge company and I was on the drug. The reason why they came from Japan and opened operations in the United States. So it was really cool in so many ways, but the spotlight was definitely on our performance. If our brand sneezed, the whole company caught the flu. And mm. so there was a lot of pressure with that. Mm. I like that image. <laughs> uh, 
if your brand sneezed, the whole company caught the flu. You bet. And so if we missed our goal by just 1%, the whole company missed its goal. Now, can you talk about, tell us, what was your last bad day? Yeah, I, I'd love to share that with you. So it was July 11, 2001. And up until that day, I was a good human doer, right? So if people found me on LinkedIn or Facebook and just saw me, they're like, hey, he's got it together. Two beautiful girls. Elle was three and a half. Grady was seven months old. Great wife, married seven years, really cool job. But I was doing, as we just talked about. And since I'm an avid cyclist, one of the things that I have on my to-do list <laughs> was to ride my bike in every every one of the 50 states here in America. And I had not ridden my bike in New Mexico yet. And we had a company meeting out in New Mexico, one of these like arrive on Monday, depart on Friday, go back home. So I decided to bring my bike out. And I found a little loop. The loop took me out the back parking lot of our resort, down a road, and then up the entranceway. It was about a two-mile loop. And I thought, hey, why not bring my bike out? I can ride my bike in New Mexico, cross that state off my list, avoid the hotel gym. It, it all made sense. It was like a perfect master plan. Until on the second day of the meeting, I was riding in the morning, sort of breathing in that, breathing in that great uh, New, Mexi New Mexico morning air, and I came around a bend and a speeding SUV was right in my lane going 40 miles an hour. And he hit me head on. I had nowhere to go. I couldn't react fast enough to avoid him. And I remember the sound of me hitting his grill, the front part of his truck, the sound of me going into his windshield, the screech of his brakes. And then the thud I made when I came off his hood and fell onto the asphalt below. And I was knocked unconscious and after a few minutes, the EMTs arrived and I regained consciousness. And I asked the EMTs what every cyclist asks after they've crashed. I have asked, I asked them like, how's my bike? So, um, and so they looked at me and they're like, what? And I said, oh, yeah, how's my bike? It was my attempt to cut the tension because the tension was enormous with a little humor, probably wasn't really all that well-timed, but, I knew when I could feel I was in the worst pain of my life, and I knew that my life was in question, right? I could, I could feel it from their energy that I was in a life and death situation, and I willed myself not to fall asleep. I kept on telling myself, don't fall asleep, Michael. Whatever you do, do not fall asleep, because I was worried that if I fell asleep, I may never, ever wake up again. And as I waited for the helicopter to bring me to the trauma center in Albuquerque, I promised myself if I live, then life was going to be different. I would stop chasing happiness, stop doing this human doer thing I was doing, and just be happy. And they took me off in the helicopter and off to the trauma center. Wow, that's quite a story. And uh, it was so vivid, you obviously do remember every detail. Now, do you recall what your self-talk was like just after the accident, when you were lying in the hospital bed, very, very slowly beginning to recover? Yeah, so the first several days I was actually in the ICU, and I don't remember anything about the ICU. We talked about my chemistry days. 
Well, I was on a lot of chemicals in the ICU and I don't remember a thing. So I was a little loopy. I actually told my wife to buy Amazon stock. It happened to be $15 a share back then. We didn't buy it. So I have forgiven her for that. I also interviewed her for a job that I didn't hire her for and she's forgiven me for that. <laughs> so, um, so I don't really remember much about those first several days. And then I came out of the ICU and the doctor started telling me about my accident you know, how the driver had a revoked license and he should not have been driving that day. The accident probably should never have happened if you want to think of it in those terms. And then they started telling me about a lifetime of limitation, a lifetime of dependency that I would have more surgeries in front of me. And certainly they told me about all the things I couldn't do anymore or didn't have. And since we go where our eyes go, my promise to myself that life was going to be different, I would just be happy and stop chasing happiness. Well, that abruptly stopped, right? There was no chase. I couldn't see happiness anymore. So I got pretty angry, dark. I got revengeful too, Lewis. I was like, this guy harmed me, sort of the eye for an eye, right? I was like, mm -hmm. he took from me, therefore I'm going to take from, from him. So when it was quiet in the hospital, after all my visitors had left, after all the doctors went about, their day and they went home. I was in my hospital bed in the dark by myself in traction with IVs and catheter and all this. And I was having a wonderful pity party. Why me? I'm a victim. Life is so unfair. I'm going to get back at this guy. And yeah, life was different, but definitely not in the way that I intended when I was waiting for that helicopter to take me to the trauma center. Hmm. Now, how did you get the name Trauma Patient Mango? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for the record, the only way I like my mangoes is in margaritas. So, <laughs> I'm not a fan of the mango. Um, but, hey, a good mango margarita, Ooh, a little salt and a little on the rocks, eh, not bad, right? So, I'll take that. So, back then, I, I didn't ride with any identification. Right. So there was no right now runners and cyclists know a product called road ID and it's a bracelet you wear for just my cases. Right. So the EMTs can identify you. But back then I had none, none of it. And I was a little out of it when the EMTs arrived. So I kept on screwing up my phone number back home to call my wife and the contacts at work. So they named me just like they name hurricanes and blizzards. They go through the alphabet. And so the next letter up, with, uh, up was the letter M. So I became trauma patient Mango. And so we've mm -hmm. had some good fun with it. We have a couple paintings of mangoes in our house. Um, again, although I don't really like to eat them, <laughs> I'm more of an apple blueberry guy myself. But again, in a margarita, not bad. But that's how I gained the name trauma patient Mango. And I stayed that way until my wife was able to make it out to Albuquerque and properly ID me. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So um, I can I can never hear the word mango again without like going back to my accident. So mm. pretty funny. Yeah, I guess. Well, now it is because you're <laughs> now it is. Yeah, now, yeah, it is. <laughs> now, now, now you're past it. Yeah. Can, can you describe how your self-talk and mindset gradually changed after the accident? Well, so early on it stayed pretty dark 
And the, but the thing is, I, I had enough intelligence to know like, hey, you can't show up this way when other people are around you. Although so many people were like, hey, you've been in a bad accident. Like the whole I'm a victim story. They're like, hey, yeah, you are. This sucks. This happened. And I was like, yeah, it does suck. Right. And it allowed me so easily to fixate on what I couldn't do and didn't have. But as I progressed, I actually got flown back to New Jersey. I went to one hospital for a couple more procedures and surgeries. And then I went to another hospital. And then I started to get some perspective. Actually, at that hospital, my first three roommates were all quadriplegics. And so since everything is relative, I was like, wow, okay, this could have been a lot worse. Because up until that point, when I was in the hospital, I was the worst off in the orthopedic wing of the hospital. But now in this new hospital, I wasn't. And then I started thinking about my progress and really sort of the lack of it. I was, I was making progress because the body heals on its own, but I wasn't making as much progress as I wanted. And one moment during a rehab session, I looked around the room and I wondered like, what's driving some of these people to make progress and while others seem to stall or just sort of plateau. And I realized they had more of a, an abundant attitude instead of, themselves asking instead of them talking about like why me or asking that question their self-narrative why me they were sort of taking a why not me right so there's a great Viktor Frankl quote about our life events and how we respond to them and I often go back to that because in that moment I realized hey why not me right instead of why me and maybe I can borrow some of this attitude that I saw other people having and I could actually be defined by how I responded to my accident, my last bad day, than being defined by it. And that was a big aha for me, a big shift, if you will, that sort of showed, showed me, like if I wanted to be the best husband and father and leader and person I could be, that I had to shift my mindset and show up differently in all aspects of my life. That's very powerful. Which, would you say that was the pivotal moment when you decided or discovered that you were no longer just a human doer? I think it was the pivotal moment that I was dissatisfied with my current state of being a human doer. That I was like, this is, this is done, Lewis. I'm like, I'm done. Like, I'm done doing it this way. I, I was done being dark. I was done being angry. I was done being revengeful. Like I knew I had to make that shift, that big aha, so I could be the best for my girls. I could be the best husband to my wife. And I could also just be a, a better person, be that human being that I wanted to become. So that moment was like, all right, you know, I'm finished with like that old stuff. And it was really, I think that moment where I labeled July 11th, 2001 is my last bad day. I, I told myself, okay, that's your last bad day. Moving forward, every day, you're going to, you know, is, you're grateful for every day. We're going to fixate on the things that you still can do, you still have, and you're going to show up with some great intentions and great priorities and show up with the energy that is within you, Michael, to become that best husband, best father, best person that you want to become. Mm. And how long would you say it was before you fully embraced your new way of looking at the world? Well, 
it wasn't linear and it wasn't a light switch. The very next day I had a big doctor's appointment and I was hoping to get clearance to start putting weight on one of my legs because I broke both legs and well, we haven't talked about it, but one, the left femur shattered. And when the left femur shattered, it lacerated the femoral artery. So in many ways, I was bleeding out <clears throat> in the middle of the desert uh, when I was waiting for the helicopter. So I broke a whole bunch of everything during my accident. And so I was waiting for clearance to do a little bit more, right, to make progress in my rehab. And I went to that doctor's appointment, and he's like, no go. You haven't healed enough. And so that was a big test. It's like, oh, am I going to go back to the old way? like I'm a victim or I'm going to move forward. Like I'm a victor. I can be defined by this. So that very first day within 24 hours was a big test. And that was, that was pivotal, right? So I worked through that. And so the next day I woke up and I'm like, all right, let's get on it. So it wasn't a light switch. I would say it would be like ups and downs and twists and sideways, just like any entrepreneurial journey. So I don't know exactly when I fully embraced it, but I made a, I made a commitment that I would like every day I was going to try to work hard today to make tomorrow better. And so mm. that <clears throat> happened on that day. And some days I did it and some days, well, I fell short of the mark, but every day I showed up with that intention, like, okay, work hard today, make tomorrow better. Next day, you wake up, work hard today, make tomorrow better. And some days I made great progress and other days I made less. Some days I didn't make any, but the next day gave me another opportunity. Love it. Make tomorrow better. When did you start your coaching business? 2014. It was a seed actually that was planted when I was in the ICU. So besides telling my wife to buy Amazon stock and interviewing her for a job. I kept on repeating this guy's name. His name's David Cole. He's the first guy I knew who was an executive coach in my career. We started working together six months prior to my accident. So you think about it, Lewis, like I could have be mumbling a whole bunch of names when I was in the ICU, but I kept on referencing David. And when I came out of the ICU, my wife asked me, who's David and why is he going to show us the way? And I said, why are you asking me about David? Like, I would never talk about work at home. She goes, you kept on mentioning his name. I was like, wow. So in that moment, even back then in my state, I knew a seed was planted. And it just took 13 years of watering and a little fertilizer and a lot of tilling. And I knew, I knew in 2014 it was the right time. Call it the universe, call it whatever. That was the right time to start my business. I had thought about this for the last 13 years and it was ready to hit the go button and make it happen. Hmm. And what is the name and the significance of the name of your business? Yeah, so the business is called Peloton Coaching and Consulting. Peloton's P-E-L-O-T-O-N. And a Peloton is a group of cyclists in a bike race. So think the Tour de France, all those brightly colored lycra wearing cyclists that are going down the roads in France, that's called a Peloton. And even though they're on different teams, they work together. And actually, they go down the road faster and they do it in a very safe way when they work together, when they have leadership and coordination and communication and trust. You know, they're riding within inches or centimeters from each other. So they need all that. And for me, a Peloton on the road 
well, you can make a metaphor to a Peloton at work, like all the different cross-functional teams we have and that trust and the collaboration and communication and leadership, we need that there as well. So as I was going through my recovery, I was in my hospital bed, I thought of all my medical team, my doctors, my nurses, the aides, my wife, my friends. And I was like, they're like my medical Peloton, right? They're all sort of working to help, help me get better. And I was like, bingo, that's the name of my company. So, cause I could make that metaphor go from Peloton on the road with bikes to Peloton in my medical care to a Peloton at work. And so for me, a lot of people talk about tribes and communities and culture. So I just talk about it in terms of a Peloton as, as a way to sort of tie, tie my story into my coaching business. I love that. Is Are there bikes in your logo? Actually, there's not a bike in my logo. I've started a new thing called the Pace Line, which is another cycling analogy or metaphor. There are a couple bikes there, but I don't really go overboard with the bike thing because I don't want people to believe that I'm coaching cyclists. Ah, <laughs> uh, right, 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 yeah. right. Because right. okay. that, that's happened where people are like, oh, yeah, you coach cyclists. I go, no, no, I coach leaders um, who may ride a bike. But truth be told, most of my clients are not really big cyclists. But they love the whole metaphor analogy that I play with. Because uh, most of them hire me because of my executive experience. I've been in the trenches and I speak their language and I can work with them and help them get out of whatever trench they happen to, to be in. So mm. not too many big cyclists in my client portfolio, mm. um, surprising enough. So now, Michael, a great business offers people something that they can't get anywhere else. And I'm talking about this because there are so many coaches. So how did your accident help you find your unique offering? Well, for me, I had to really slay that monkey mind, the inner critic, the gremlin, the lizard brain, whatever we want to call it. So I became an expert pretty quickly on how to get out of our own head so we can be with other people. I'm a big believer that conversation drives everything. And the most important conversation we have is the one we have with ourselves. But if you want a good culture, a good Peloton, you want a good society, it's, it's all driven by the health of our relationships. And our relationships are driven by the value and the health of our conversations. So it's so important for us to have better conversations. And through my accident and just through my corporate career as an executive, I really studied that art of conversation because we, we really don't spend a lot of time actually teaching it or you know, cause we're so busy doing, and that could be through email or through our, you know, just face to face. And in today's society, at least here in the States, we're not really having a great conversation. We're sort of running to our tribal corners and we're trying to out shout each other. That's why silos develop at work. So through my accident, through my recovery and just my corporate experience, I learned the value of conversation. And now I try to help, I try to help other sales and marketing leaders who are juggling it all like I used to sort of slay those negative stories so they can actually have complete success and have better conversations with those around them. 
not only at work, but actually in their life. Of course, I relate to this very strongly because my passion is storytelling. And to me, that's what storytelling, one of the things the storytelling is about. It's about how do you engage in and even and create an empowering conversation with yourself and with the world. Love that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so it's so needed. Um, because oh, we, well, we can't we can't live without it. Yep. It was, yeah. It's what's brought all the people together for all these years. But we have some beautiful stories, as you know, as an expert in storytelling that have built amazing things and great innovation. But that self narrative can really hold us back from stepping into a, a better version of who we can be. It's always the self narrative. That's where it begins. Absolutely. I mean, um, in network marketing, which uh, I, I'm i involved with in, people are surprised at first when they're told, well, we can teach you the skills in about a week. Really? Yeah. Because the skills are pretty simple. But what you need to really master first is the mindset. And that goes back to the language that you're using when you talk to yourself. You bet. You know, it's just it's so, so powerful. So who are your ideal clients and how do you help them? You mentioned a bit about how you help them, but if you want to elaborate more, please do. Thanks, Lewis. So generally, I work with sales and marketing leaders all the way up to the C-suite. And primarily, I work with those that are, doing, are trying to do it all. Like so many of our great sales and marketing leaders nowadays they feel like they have to do it all at work. They have to do all of it at home. It's sort of 24 seven. And certainly there's a lot of hustle and grind being sold out there. And that's what society sort of suggests that we have to do in order to stay competitive and stay relevant. And I think hard work obviously is a, a pillar to my success in my life. And certainly that's gotta be part of the equation, but all that hustle without the consciousness can feed that self-narrative that you talk about, the negative stuff, the worry, the doubt. So I work with them and try to slay that, try to change that story so they can take different action and therefore get a better result and get onto whatever version of complete success that they want to strive for. So, cause so many of them have, they have the paycheck, right? They have the title, they have sort of the riches around them, the great car and maybe the beautiful home, they're taking the great vacation. So they have all this external success. It looks good on Instagram and on Facebook when we post stuff. But inside, much like I was when I was, you know, sort of being a human doer before my accident, they're not that successful in the inside, like in their in their chest, in their body, in their soul, right? That they're chasing happiness or chasing whatever they're chasing. So I work with them on defining what that complete version of success looks like, helping them slay that those self narratives that don't feed them, don't fuel them, so they can go on to that higher level, that higher level of success. It doesn't have to be organizational chart level, but just that complete success level that they're striving for. So I work with them as in terms of being a strategy partner a venting partner sometimes, an accountability partner, all that. So when I work with my clients, I go all in with them 
and we become one very powerful team, uh, one very powerful Peloton, if you will, uh, to help them achieve what they're looking to achieve. I love that. You, um, what you just said describes what uh, Tony Robbins passionately talks about. He says this often that success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And he uses um, the example of Robin Williams. Yep. And he says uh, he loves to ask his audiences, how many people here, raise your hands, love Robin Williams. Everybody's hand goes up. But none of you knew him, but you all loved him. Right. And then he goes through a list of all of his achievements. Was he successful at everything he tried to do? Yes, he was. And he hung himself. Yep. So the, the man was not fulfilled. That inner game was the one he was losing. And that's sad. It is sad. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, lo yeah. we lost him prematurely. His family did. And he had, a, he had a powerful inner narrative that just didn't make him feel fulfilled. So, yeah. So exactly what Tony talks about and preaches about and lectures about. I try to help my clients do exactly that. And the cool thing about it is that they get someone who's been there and has been able to get into that rut, if you will, but also get himself out of it. Now it took, it took one hell of an accident to do that. So as I sit down with folks, it's like, hey, you don't have to have a big last bad day accident to break out of the rut, right? I'm, I'm here to help you do that. And your success is, is my success. You just made me, I have a pretty bizarre sense of humor. And as you were talking, I just said, I just imagine that you have an interview process with the client the first time and they're filling out a form and, and you say to them, you know, I think I can help you, but the first requirement is you're going to have to have a serious accident. Can you can <laughs> Can, 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 you, can you handle that? Are yeah. you are you willing to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's your commitment, right? Come on. Like, above and beyond, baby. Above and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. And, again, and the person says, I don't know. Well, you say, look, we can, we can do it on a scale. I mean, like, if you're willing to break a leg, I can help you so much. If you're willing to break both legs, I can even help you more. Yep. You know, absolutely. I should I, put that in my waiver. That, you I, should. That, I think I, I'll, I will give you a commission off of that. Well, the perfect match or Peloton could be because I'm an actor who plays gangsters. You could say, <laughs> I know the perfect guy to break your legs. That's it. <laughs> a, little brass, a little brass knuckles by Louie. You, you know, know well, they, hey, they go. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm telling you. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want people to know about your coaching program? So that it's, I would say it's customizable, that I don't do a cookie cutter. When people work with me, it's not a module. So when we do our sessions, it's not pull out module one or module two the next week. So I customize everything to meet my client where my client's at and what they want to get out of it. So I, I want to bring that sort of a concierge boutique feel to my coaching practice and since i go all in and people obviously have me during the week but 
if things pop up like they often do because life pops up, they can get access to me and we can strategize and work through whatever challenge that may have surfaced during the week. And so I, I get really selective about who I choose to work with because I want to make sure they're committed. They don't have to break their legs, right? Or even one leg, but I want to make sure they're really committed to becoming better. And if they are, then I am going to go all in with them and develop a program to help them do just that. Mm, beautiful. Now, where do you see yourself, Michael, in five years? Good question. Well, living maybe out west. My wife is from Oregon originally. So we might find ourselves out there one day from New Jersey out to Oregon. But what I see, where I see myself is in a mode of service and giving. And it could be Peloton gets even bigger. The Peloton grows and grows. But I believe that one of the reasons why I didn't die that day was to serve and to give in maybe a small way. Maybe it's even in a bigger way. So in five years, I see myself in some capacity just serving and giving because I think that's what life is about. That's just my personal perspective that we're on this planet to make the world better for those around us. And I want to, I want to be doing that five years from now. Heck, I want to be doing that, you know, 45 years from now. Well, you're in good company because um, some of the greatest minds of every century have said the exact same thing. And um, why challenge that? It's pretty attractive. Uh, I think you've answered this next question. Do you still love biking? Yes, of course. Uh, got, of course. Yeah, yeah, I got to. Uh, I rode 51 miles. So up in uh, Canada, it'd be like, what, about 90 kilometers uh, thereabouts. I think if I'm doing the math sort of right, or maybe 87. Something so, like that. What, yeah. when, did, when did you do that? Uh, it was uh, over the weekend. Um, so um, usually my longer rides are on the weekend. I do shorter rides during the week just because... I work and uh, serving my clients, but yeah, 51 miles, a little chilly. It was 30 degrees Fahrenheit down here, but it was good to get out. Um, and I, I just loved it. You know, fresh air, the, the chance to explore, the chance to ride with some other guys and have conversation and community, all good stuff. Michael, do you have a favorite book? You know, I don't. I, I tend to like, the last book I've read. So, but I don't have one that is my favorite. And obviously I could say my own book, um, but well, that would why, be like, that would no, be weird. But, no, no, why? No, you can, you can say your own book. So Talk I would say it. my own book because I never imagined coming, coming from a place I was in grammar school and middle school and high school in terms of like, English and reading and all that to say that I would have a best-selling memoir that won a couple of awards from the National uh, North America Book Awards. To me, it's somewhat surreal, to be honest, Lewis. It's like I, I sort of pinched myself and I wrote it for my two girls who were too young at the time to really know what happened to dad or what happened to the family. So primarily I wrote it for them. And when they read it 
and they hugged me and they were like, it's really great. To me, it was like, all right, we're good. Like every other copy, and obviously I wrote it for them primarily, but secondarily for anyone that's going through a challenge that needs a little inspiration and motivation that's relatable. Um, everybody that reads that and gets something out of it, that's sort of the whipped cream and cherry on it. But to come from where I was when I was younger to being an author, like it totally blows me away. I, I look at my book. I'm like, oh, my God, I did that. How cool is that? So that, give, us, that, give us the title again. So it's called Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows. And obviously uh, shift is like a shift in mindset, shift in career, shift in life. A lot of play, and obviously the shift of the bicycle gears. And is it available on Amazon? It is. It's available on Amazon. It's available through barnesandnoble.com. People can go to my website, which is michaelobrienshift.com, and they can pick up autographed copies. I ship to the United States and also to Canada. Very, very nice. Very nice. You know, when you were talking about um, you pinch yourself and it's surreal, again, it makes me think of the the power of the self-talk that creates the self-image. Because in a way, to me, it's not unlike the phenomenon, a person who loses a massive amount of weight will look, often look at themselves in the mirror just after they've transformed and they keep seeing the heavy person. Some of them yeah. have to, some of them need psychological uh, guidance to make the transition because in their minds they can't identify with this new person they're seeing in the mirror and it sounds a bit like the same for you it's like the guy that was never really good at language etc and writing wrote a book you know yep. that kind of thing it's it's fascinating no, definitely. There was a self narrative there that I had to, I had to slay in order yeah, to get, yeah. get through and write this book. And, and so many people told me to write it and I was like, yeah, but, and then I finally had to get past that be, yeah, and I'm going to do it. Well, I'm glad that um, we're talking about it because I'm sure a lot of people listening will be able to relate to that same kind of doubt. And, um, I have a sign on my desk right now, my the wall in front of me. It says, doubt your doubts. Oh, I love it. That's yeah, so cool. I look at it every day. Now, do you have a favorite quote? Yeah, my favorite quote goes back to when I was 10 years old and in Little League Baseball. My coach was uh, Mr. Ron Brown, and he gave us a quote, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that's the one quote that has stayed with me for the last 40 years. You know, to me, it's about resilience. And I, I'm a big believer in resilience as a superpower for a lot of my sales and marketing executives and leaders. I think I have it, you know, fall down seven, get back up eight, ties into the Japanese term wabi-sabi, which I just love to say, which loosely translated means broken but better. So I just love that. Like, hey, when times are tough, we, we might fall down, we might get punched, but we're going to get back up again. And we're going to keep on pedaling. 
Actually, Wabi, I mean, it means it means spicy tuna. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it, it yeah. Does, yeah. So, it, it, so the thing is, you can't get your wasabi and your wabi sabi all mixed up. Then <laughs> it would make that dragon roll. I'm telling you, so great. Yeah. I'm telling you. Then you'd have to slay the dragon roll. Absolutely, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, spot on, man. You know. Um, you also mentioned Victor Frankl before. Quote from Victor Frankl. Yes. What was it? Do you remember exactly? So the exact one is basically we're like I'm gonna I'll get it off. I'll, one or two words will be off, but basically we are not defined by the events in our lives, but rather by our response to them. It, would that be in the book um, "Man's Search for Meaning"? I believe that quote is in that book. I mean, mm -hmm. that's definitely one of, you know, it's in my f favorite book categories. But when it comes to like favorite movies and favorite song or favorite books, like I have a collection. I have like a top 10 and sometimes it shifts over time. So, How can people contact you, Michael? So they can get to me through my website, as I mentioned, michaelobrienshift.com. You can also email me at michael at pelotoncc.net. Well, so, so, slow, slow down, slow down. Okay. You know, it's funny because you know it's, uh, you know, because it's, it's yours. Yeah, but, but it's people, mine. They go I'm writing Pel it down. And like, because yeah. Peloton um, is not a word that people use every day. Michael O'Brien is O-B, well, O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N. Yes. And shift.com. And yeah. what was, what was the email again? The email is michael at pelotoncc.net. I'll spell it for you, Lewis, for you and your audience. Okay. It's P-E-L-O-T-O-N-C as in Charles, C as in Charles, dot net. Ah, okay. And do you have any final thoughts that you'd I like to share? I think my final thought, yeah, my final thought, couple. One... Try to get aware and be mindful of your self-narrative. And this takes some time to look in the mirror and really determine what story are you telling yourselves when you're triggered and what triggers you. Values, vision, ego, worldview, perspectives, you name it. So I always encourage people to try to step into what your self-narrative is what is it when things are going well? And what what is it or what does it sound like when it's holding you back? And the second thing, going back to the question you asked me in terms of where do I see myself in five years, it's give, be in service to others. So you can always do some incredible work if you run a company, um, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a leader within a company, that the more you give and you're in the service to, for others, the more you get back. I firmly believe this. I've experienced this in my life. And I think we're all better off if we just use a little empathy and a, a lot of giving to make the world a better place. I want to thank you so much for your authenticity, your optimism, your humor, and your inspiration today. You've given our listeners um, a gift. Thank you, Lewis. It was awesome to be with you. And 
I really enjoyed our conversation. To be continued. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Michael O'Brien. I enjoy all of the interviews that I am privileged to have with the uh, wonderful guests that I meet, people who come my way. The reason I particularly enjoy today is because I think it's because of my dramatic nature. I mean, drama is in my blood. I'm a professional storyteller, actor. And today's story, Michael's story, developed with a beautiful dramatic arc. It began with him sharing his experiences as a young boy, his love of bicycling. And then there was a very authentic transition into the different role that bicycling took in his life and how it was instrumental in who he became. And it's very, very powerful. Please share this with other people. Let them know that they can hear this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. By the way, when you visit the website, take a look at the new, it has a new face. I've actually moved over to a different service for my website. I love the upgrade that it has. I think you'll find it um, an enjoyable experience to navigate that site. And of course, as always, you will find your free gift, the ebook that I created for you, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Remember that our sponsor is Audible and that they offer you, the listeners of this show, a one-month free trial of all of Audible service and a download for free of any audiobook of your choice. You get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. The thing that I would love you to take away and reflect on during the next week from today's interview is Michael talking about his last bad day. We all have bad days. Some of them are awful. Look inside of you and see what you would need to do to f bring yourself to a decision that you have had your last bad day. What would that mean to your life? What would be different? And what would it take for you to make that decision, to make that shift? And to help you with that, always begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.